Hey everybody, welcome back to the New Seed Podcast. Your host Chris, joined as always by my co-host Peace. And today, another great episode for everyone out there. We are very excited to speak to these two individuals, both coming from the Aspen Group. And if you haven't heard about the Aspen Group, one of their brands, Aspen Dental, you've probably heard of and seen one pop up in the neighborhood by you. They've been scaling crazy and we're here to talk to them to learn a lot more about not only themselves, but what they have going on in the Aspen Group. And very, very excited to announce Corey Rose, the Vice President of People Programs and Total Rewards at the Aspen Group, and Michael Stops, the Vice President of Talent Acquisition of the Aspen Group. Guys, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for joining us. Good. Good. Doing very it's well, a, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. Beautiful Thursday in Chicago. Oh, well, we love to hear that. First and foremost, if this is for anyone first, Corey or Michael, please give us a little bit of your background and, you know, how'd you kind of get into the people space and how'd you end up to where you are now? And for anyone. Sure. I'm happy to go first. So, hi everyone. As I've been introduced, I am Corey Rose. I am our VP of People Programs and Total Rewards here at the Aspen Group. I have been in the HR space my entire career. So coming up on, I think, 17 years since I graduated college, long ass time. Excuse me. Hopefully I can say that on your podcast. Yes, you um, can. <laughs> I went to college and I, I'm a uh, interdisciplinary studies major. So that's like humanities. My parents were very big on go to college, study whatever you want, because you're going to end up in business. Everybody all kind of ends up in business. So I went more of like the humanistic approach and was very interested in like, people and where they came from in different cultures. And so I actually have two minors. One is Africana studies and the other is cross-cultural humanities. And so it was really just kind of putting yourself in different situations, understanding different cultures. And that really kind of bled into me getting into HR. Uh, so I actually started my career as a recruiter with Bromstad in Savannah, Georgia. And I did recruiting for about three to four years prior to being like, okay, once I get in, you know, employees in, what happens to them then. And so I moved over to the HR side, I would say really cut my teeth on good HR at Deloitte, which is where I met our chief people officer, Jerry Doris, who I have now worked with three times, including here, and then including the last place we were together. Mm -hmm. um, and then most recently through the pandemic, moved from being more on the HR business partnering side to the total reward side, really kind of getting into the nuts and bolts of, you know, how do we reward employees, compensation, equity, benefits, that sort of thing. And then coming full circle, I'm back doing people partnering and a whole bunch of things, engagement, talent management. So I've spent pretty much my whole career, I would say, in the HR space. Great. So hi, everyone. My name is Michael Stops. I'm the VP of Talent Acquisition at the Aspen Group. Pretty much my whole career, too. I wish we had a story of being an astronaut or some kind of explorer before. <laughs> but I am from the UK. It's where I grew up and where I went to school. I actually studied law at university. It's always so fascinating hearing about uh, the American study system and the majors and the minors, you know, age age 17 in the UK, you kind of decide if you want to go to law school, you want to go to med school, you want to do business, you decide a little bit earlier on. So went to law school, went down that road for a while. This is a story for another podcast. <laughs> but we choose our, we make our decisions and we choose our destinies. And I started my professional career working within a recruitment um, agency environment and found myself very quickly moving into in-house recruiting. My first kind of break within a brand was Burberry, the, the fashion brand, uh, recruiting for those guys and skipping through a number of years, worked at other retailers and also within a media group environment. One real theme of my career to date is working 
at a kind of group level for yeah. multi-brands and multi-geography businesses. I moved to Germany a little bit earlier than Corey. My first gig in Germany was working for Adidas, or as how we say in Europe, Adidas, Adidas. <laughs> in their global headquarters, leading brand and marketing recruiting, later digital and tech recruiting. And it was at that time that I found our chief people officer that Corey had already worked for a few times before, Jerry Doris, who hired me to lead talent acquisition uh, for a company called Delivery Hero. I still remember Corey being part of the interview panel. I remember it. You were wearing your Adidas sweatshirt and I was oh, yeah. talking to you and I walked in and I was like, Jerry, you have to hire her. Please hire Michael. You have to hire Michael. That's what she says now. I don't know. No, I, don't I said that. I said, <laughs> Jerry, I said that. I read the notes in the system. That's not, that is not true. That's not true. <laughs> and yeah, that was, I mean, that was 2018. And that's where I met Corey. Yeah. And we worked to establish what HR and TA centers of excellence could look like for a food tech delivery business. I think it was 25 brands in 50 plus markets. Yeah. And establishing what the, the parent organization or the centers of excellence could look like to allow each of those businesses in each of those countries to really thrive, mm -hmm. um, how they could be greater than the sum of their equal parts from an HR and TA perspective. And we had a great time in Berlin. Pre-COVID. Pre Pre-COVID. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then one by one, we found ourselves at the Aspen Group, uh, starting with Jerry, who we mentioned before. I was, who was before our boss. Jerry. I started before Jerry. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You find out so much, don't you, in podcasts? <laughs> I, so I education. started 15 days, like 15 days before Jerry did. Yeah, starting with Corey, followed by Jerry, and then I made the move to the US uh, for the for the for the first time living here. And it's been one year living in Chicago, doing a similar thing to what we've done um, internationally before, but in a new market for me at least, and certainly within a whole new industry with a new with a yeah. new dynamic. It's been great, huh? Yeah. Love, absolutely love this duo. You guys never considered starting your own podcast? <laughs> seriously, seriously. <laughs> we're thinking more like, we're thinking broadcasting, maybe a morning show. <laughs> That's the plan. I'd watch it. I, I'd watch it. I I'd watch like it too. <laughs> I, think, I think it's perfect. I mean, you guys introduced a, a really good topic briefly when you guys said all these locations you guys have been present in, whether it's personally as well, professionally, Atlanta, Berlin, now Chicago, yeah. UK, either one of you guys could take the driver's seat in this instance, but really talk about what HR looks like from two sides of the world. How does Europe look at HR versus how do United, professionals in the United States look at HR? And let's take it from there. That is a very <laughs> a big question. question. <laughs> <laughs> we have to tread very carefully. How much time do we have? Are any works councils watching? Yeah. I mean, I... I certainly look at it through the lens of kind of labor laws and employment laws within different within different industries and certainly within different within different countries. Just how much impact does an HR organization have on the business? And one thing that I think sometimes subconsciously and sometimes purposefully that I've looked for as I've kind of explored HR in different in different continents, in different in different parts of the world, is just how close can I get to the impact within the business and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit yeah. later on in the in the podcast but I've certainly found myself at an organization where we're at the beating heart of of the business from an HR perspective 
because here at the Aspen Group, we think about Aspen Dental, Clear Choice, Well Now, Chapter, and our latest um, addition to the family, AZ Pet Vet. We're a provider-centric organization, which means that our doctors or our providers are our people. And if your product is your people, then it puts HR at the very center. Now, I've, you know, in, in my career, pass the mic to Corey in a moment, but in my career, um, the, the people within the organization have had different levels of importance. You know, within tech, it might be the actual tech product. Yeah. Uh, within a uh, shoe making organization, shoe manufacturer, it might be the sneaker that's at the very heart. But when the people are at the very heart, it has a slightly different, it has a slightly different context. But then the reason why we kind of chuckled a little bit was if you take a country like Germany, for example, that has very specific labor laws and yes. very specific guidelines and regulations around people in the workplace, it throws all of these curveballs and all of these different dynamics into what it means to be an HR leader within that particular market. I think to your point, though, and I think through COVID, more companies are getting to this, that like, even if your shoes, your product, product, even if your technology is your product, if you don't have people to do the product, like you're never going to be successful. And I think so. really like it, there's one positive thing that came out of COVID, right? It's this idea that like, you've got to take care of your people and like how people are doing mentally and physically, regardless of where you're living in the world. Like, I think it really put kind of like the lens back on taking care of like the people first, you know, and then, you know, as Michael said in Germany, you know, as an American, I up until the point when we moved, moved to Berlin, I had worked in organizations that had international, you know, components and I've supported international teams, but I never lived and worked in an international, you know, in an international environment, you know, and going to Germany, you go, you know, I've got my, my Americanism on and I'm like, come on team, we're going to do these things. And then it's like, you know, somebody falls and sprains their ankle and they're like, here's my doctor's note and I'm out for a month. And I'm like, what? In America, you like have kidney surgery and you're back at your desk like two hours later. Like it's just, you know, it's it's just different. But like yeah. at the heart of it, you know, HR is still HR and like it's still taking care of your people, right? Like performance management still exists regardless of where you live. Compensation still exists wherever you live, right? Like from my for my realm, and I didn't do compensation specifically in Europe, but like total rewards looks different when you live abroad, right? When you're, you know, you get very kind of honed in on like how you do things in your home country and in the US, right? Like your benefits package is this big giant thing. You've got to pick your health insurance, you've got to pick yeah. your dental insurance, and then you go to a different country and they're like, yeah, well, we just pay for it. That's free for you. And you're like, what do you, mean? What do you mean it's free? So, you know, it, it, it just, some of these things that you add in just, just look different, right? But yeah. like for me, I think it's just more of the cultural nuances That's of right. understanding the culture that you're in and how to kind of maneuver in that environment yeah. more than anything, right? I, I yeah. One of the things I did when I first moved to Germany is I read the culture map, mm -hmm. which I find really helped me because it kind of opened your eyes of like, well, they have this type of boss and they have this type of employees. Yeah. And for me, what I didn't realize is I was leading a team. I think everybody on my team was German, except for the one guy was Dutch. And it, it's like culturally, when you make a decision, you move forward with that decision. And mm -hmm. I would make a decision. In some with, cultures. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, well, in Germany, in Germany, Germany specifically. Right. And they were like, okay, well, that's the decision that we made. And that's where we're going. And what 
what, you know, in tech, as you know, it's like you make a decision, you move forward and then you get 15 steps. And it's like, nope, we're going to turn left and run 15 miles to the left. Yeah. And I would do that with ease because I'm used to the agile environment and my team would still be like, but no, we made this decision and we're still mm -hmm. going this direction. And like, that's I, I, the change isn't like a thing. And so it's, you know, trying to take them around the curve and then be self-reflective of like, okay, you know, yeah. agility is different. Agility mm -hmm. looks different, like culturally and from an HR perspective. So yeah. Not yeah. really sure if I answered their question. To build upon that, yes, you know when we worked together in an in a in an international environment before, we were working for essentially a headquarters, yes, um, in a multi uh, geography, uh, multi market for multi market brands. So what we were building were HRTA people products that we were rolling out globally to two yeah. two larger brands two different uh, parts of the world so that meant that just kind of reinforcing what Corey just said that meant that we had to be very sensitive to what would be kind of a localization to that product like what is the 8020 what are the things that we need to be aware of as we roll out global products systems processes yes. anything how do we make sure that it's going to land when it needs to land in potentially 50 different countries in the world? Well, first of all, Corey, you mentioned the shift of really just dancing with the culture, essentially, yeah. in that you're coming from the United States. You're used to, oh, I broke my leg. Well, I'll see you on Monday still. I'm just letting you know I, bro I broke my leg. With How did you react to that? Was it, were you almost like taken back? Was it well-received? Like, where was, was there a disconnect? I, I'm really curious to know, like, how... How does one really encounter that, especially being in a leadership position? Like, what do you, how do you react? What do you say? I'm giggling because it was technically on Michael's team that that happened. Uh, and I just remember the person being like, oh, send me your Netflix recommendations. I'm going to be off work for a month. And I'm like, what do you mean you're going to be off work for a month? I don't, you know, it's just more of this, like, what do you mean? But it's like, you, you know, you, you have to pause. And I think you have to be so much more observant, right? And like, I think coming from the US and I think that this is just like our cultural thing is that like we know it all and how we do it is the way that everyone else does it and it's like yeah. no that's not actually true and that like how we do it might not be the best way right like if people break their legs they shouldn't have to come to work the next day right, right. like it, it there are there right. are other countries that are really more employee centric and I think Germany is one of those yeah the the power is set, the the center of gravity is certainly more with in some ways more with the employee than with the employer yeah but i remember i think it was my first from on the on, from the other perspective i think it was one of my first months of being here in the us and um somebody within a within a um one of the teams that we that we impact was was pregnant and was was having a baby and i was having like a parallel conversation with this person essentially saying who are we hiring for your maternity leave? Because I come from the UK, from Europe, you know, if, if, if there, there, there are great parental rights in, in the kind of subjectively great parental rights in certain countries in, in Europe, right? And I was, I, I couldn't really wrap my head around somebody leaving for a period of time and we were not hiring a, a like a fixed term contract 12 month maternity cover because that's kind of normal uh, or, or was my reality and this person was like no I mean I'm I'm leaving on you know the week I'm due to give birth and I'll be back a few weeks later and I was like 
was great, great. great. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Yeah, great. Spoiler, spoiler alert, she's sitting next to me. But it's um it's just a, a you know, it's it's some of these assumptions or some of these truths that have have just been there throughout your career. And I think that when you find yourself in a new environment, when you find yourself, you know, in a different cultural context, then it, it makes you question some of these um some of these truths that you just you know that you've that you've always had and i think that that's that's an interesting muscle to train i think that's kind of an interesting way in general to look at people topics right is that we should always be questioning things is there a right way a wrong way probably not but i think it makes you more curious it makes you yeah, i think be- i feel I like i'd become more curious as a practitioner yeah of just like well wait how did we do it somewhere else because like you yeah. know you're also trained in this idea of like a lot of people bring like, well, we did it this way and we've done mm-hmm. it that way. And it's like, yeah, but like, that's, that's okay. Like yeah. one size does not fit all. Yeah, that's right. And you know, there's rarely a right way or a wrong way, but there is a right way for a particular person. And there's a wrong way for a particular person. And that might not be based on where they are in the world or yeah. the culture. You know, I think that we just accept a lot of things, but it really reminds us of why, again, as people leaders, why it's so important to ask teams and ask people what they want, what makes them happy, you know, what will keep them engaged, which is more Corey's world. Um, but, you know, it's 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 really important to ask those questions and to listen as people leaders so we can build products that are going to be appropriate for them and that are going to keep them engaged. Speaking with the the cultural differences being in Europe, what what differences have you seen with candidate conversations? For example, Gen Z millennials, you know, they typically want inclusive, you know, very flexible environments to work, whether it be the tech industry or whatever or whatever industry they're interested in. Did you experience the same kind of conversations and interests when you're in Europe? I know you guys mentioned this was pre-COVID. Yeah. Right. So the dynamic might have been a little different, but can you either of you speak a little bit about Hey, candidates here typically requested these kind of things versus candidates in the United States typically these kind of things. And as you mentioned earlier, Corey, I mean, culturally, the demands and really just the day to day life could almost provoke different interests. So what what have you guys seen? I would say not necessarily in Germany, but when I when I was living in D.C., I worked for a company that was opening an office in Japan. And it was a small office and it was like eight to 12 people. But I remember and I was I was covering APAC as an HR business partner. And as we're opening this office, they kept asking me like, what desk number do I sit at? And I'm like, just sit anywhere. Like it's, it's just sit at the desk. And it was like, well, what type of swag am I going to have? And it's like, I don't know, we'll like send you some backpacks or whatever. Right. Again, lesson learned. But again, it's a cultural thing where to them, it was very important to know because like culturally it's like order and understanding like, okay, this is my desk. Like this is my area. This is where I sit to do my work. And also at the time, and this was like 2010 to 14, something like that, you know, it was like, people really want to display the company that they work, whether they're commuting to work or like in the swag that they have, you know, so for the, so it's kind of like a nuanced answer, because it wasn't necessarily like candidate demands, but it was actually like employees that were already there. And it was just, you know, me bumbling around trying to figure out why asking me what desk to sit at, which like, (laughs) now I feel like an idiot. I'm like, I should have asked and listened, but you know, here we are. It's a really interesting question. I think that people's basic needs are the same, right? No matter where where they're where they're from in the world. And I think that as an employer, sometimes we have to step in to fulfill needs that are not met by other parts of society. 
right? So for example, you know, take uh, the Nordics, for example, perhaps they can offer amazing like uh, parental rights and childcare benefits, for example. So, you know, maybe the employer doesn't need to step in there. You know, the, the UK famously has a national health service, so as Corey mentioned in, earlier in, in the podcast, you know, conversations around health, health benefits and healthcare and how you're going to provide healthcare to your family, the employer doesn't have to step in yeah, they there. they don't have so, to carry that burden. So, not that it's a burden, but yeah. So yeah, it's just other, right? And so I think the employer has to step in where potentially society needs it most within a particular part of the world. But I was when you asked the question, I was thinking, through, I, I think in my career, at least, when I've changed country I've also changed industry and when I've moved I've there's been lots of variables whether it's a pandemic whether it's a you know completely new world that, that I've that I've explored so I think there's been so many variables that actually I, I I would like to reflect on that question a little bit more to see if I can kind of pull out any 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 true themes but certainly a lot of a lot of variables with think, my moves I think you said something though that makes sense is that the, the kind of the foundational things, right? And we're talking about this a lot here at the Aspen Group about employer of choice. And it's like the foundational needs have to be met. And that's like, I want to be paid well for what I do, right? Like I want to be able to make a living wage and I want to feel safe and secure at work. And, you know, I want to have growth and that sort of thing. And I, and I, and you said that, right? It's like, we're filling as employers are filling different pe- pieces of people's lives. And I almost put the lens on it as that, like some mm-hmm. people want to work at a place where like, they have great coworkers because like they don't have a big family outside of work or whatever. And they yep. want that to be, to be, or become mm-hmm. their family. Right. Or, you know, they, they really want to be focused on one piece of technology that they haven't gotten exposure to. And so for them, they're seeking that sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, you did mention it, right. There's different generational shifts, right. And it's, you know, some people are like, well, I'd make less money if I have more freedom or I want to know, yeah. you know, I want to get promoted much quicker or what that is. But like, I, I really like what you said around that is that like people are motivated more by like what are what are they looking for to fill that gap? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, this idea of employer of choice, that term gets it gets thrown around so much. And what we've spent a lot of time discussing as an HR leadership team recently is what does that what does that really mean? And is there a way that we can potentially define it and you know I think most people are familiar with like a Maslow like hierarchy of needs and and you know that you've got your foundational needs your basic needs you know you've got the the cherries on top that yep. might be something that can be a little bit differentiating in a way but we've tried to add some science and some descriptors and a way of actually defining this term that's just thrown around so frequently yeah. to be something that's actually measurable and something we can measure ourselves and our teams and our impact on the organization. Do you see candidates, or excuse me, not even candidates, employees take a lot of pride in that? You mentioned earlier that there's there's an interesting relationship people tend to have regardless of their cultural background, whether it be United States or Europe, when it comes to how they perceive work, whether it's, hey, I don't have a large family, but when I come into the office, I really look for my leadership team and my the people in you know in my department to really really make this day or week worthwhile. Yeah. So with that being said, is there a difference in relationships of how people see work there versus here? The only thing I would say if we're comparing it to Germany from if when you ask it that direction, I feel like in generality in America like people I don't want to say live to you know live to work but I think there's this like hustle culture that exists or did exist generationally we're in Germany right like 
it, it it's not like that you like work to live to have the money to go and do things but it's also the same reason you know europe's like up oh, i'm out of office the entire month of august on my holiday so i'll talk to you in september yeah. you know and here it's like you go I go on PTO for a week and I'm like, oh my God, how many emails I've right. missed? What's happening? And it's like, you got to remind yourself that like, there's a happy balance somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's speaking very generally, you know, like I, I don't- Lots of asterisks on a lot of these Lots of asterisks on lots of these things. And, you know, of course there's some of the most dedicated, you know, it's so much nuance. Yeah, I, I remember when I first moved here, I would be out in a in a bar or in a store or at the grocery checkout. And one of the most frequent questions that I was asked was, what do you do? Like, what do you do? Like, what do you do for work? <laughs> and, I, and I couldn't. And it's so normal, I think, within American culture to ask that question. And it's just a part of conversation. I think probably in London that used to come up a little bit more as well. In the eight years I was in Germany, I don't think anybody ever led with that question, certainly not a, a, a stranger or an acquaintance or someone that you were just having passing chit chat with. Had, and I, I you would, had passing chat, chit chat with, yeah, with people in Germany. Just, yeah. And just <laughs> that question used to really throw me. I was like, how much detail do you want? Would you like my LinkedIn URL? Like, do you, would you like me to walk through? Like we're in an interview, like, do you just want the top? Do you want, how, like, I, it just, it really did throw me. But I think that there's probably a little bit more Potentially, again, I really don't like speaking in, in, generally or in stereotypes, but I am, I imagine, or my experience has been that there's a little bit more of associating your personal brand with what you do yes. for a living and who you work for. And what that means is, as your personal brand is potentially intertwined with that employer, the, the job type and, and that employer brand too and you know that's been really interesting as an as an as an observation for me and it's something we talk about a lot internally too because if that's the case here it, with this organization then it also means back to employer of choice if an employee will be aligning their personal brand to you as an employer then we have a duty to ensure that they have pride and that they are proud of us as an organization, of what we do as an organization from a from a kind of big picture perspective, but also how we how we treat them, how we treat their co-workers, and how how we create an environment where they can thrive, but where they're proud, because our brand is their brand and their yes. brand is our brand. Does that make sense? Yeah, Sorry? I think so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so as leaders, how do you evaluate that relationship between dealing with candidates or current employees? as they battle personal brand versus the relationship they have with the employer brand, whether actually we, we had an individual, Angela, I believe, Chris, on our podcast, where she found a job in tech. Chris, correct me if I'm wrong. I think she was an elementary teacher. She's an elementary school teacher, yes. She's an elementary school teacher. And then she grew her, her personal brand on LinkedIn to like 30, 40,000 followers, which got her an influencer role within uh, a tech company, what are they called? Canopy Servicing, which I believe they're in the fintech space, which is really cool. So as leaders, how do you guys evaluate how people present themselves on a personal level and to make sure it matches up well with the employer's brand? Of course, you know, for example, the Aspen Group, well known. So how do you guys almost consider individuals, whether they're looking to get involved within your team or how do you consider current team members as they're almost walking billboards in a way 
being who they are on social media, like LinkedIn and things like that. I can, I'll let I you can stop. That. I feel like that's my question. <laughs> so our main, or, or one of our main employee groups are our providers and more specifically, most of our brands are doctors. So their personal brand is is incredibly important. You know, if we take Aspen Dental and we take our dentists, we take our oral surgeons, I mean, they have their hands inside the mouths of our consumer. <laughs> That's quite intimate, right? And it's a real thing. therefore, their personal brand and what it stands for, their reputation, their reputation in their space and what they do, if you take our whole network of doctors, of providers across all of our different companies and you put all of that together add all of that together that is our brand yeah you could argue that 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 is our brand it's every time you go for a, a dentist visit or a checkup it's every time you walk into an urgent care it's every time you have an you know a, a conversation with an aesthetic advisor it's it's every time you take your 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 puppy to the to the vet you're 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 experiencing the brand. You're experiencing someone's personal brand because that's 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 the person that you're you're having the conversation with, and that can happen really on a micro level. But when we add all of that together, you know, I would say that that is the employer brand. It's it's all of those experiences. It's everyone's experience with their provider. It's everyone's experience with someone in one of our call centers. It's everyone experience everyone's experience with one of my recruiters. Yeah. You know, brand equals experience It through to simplify and experience equals brand to, to play it backwards. And I think it's something that we shouldn't lose sight of as, as your genuine brand being the interactions and experiences that those are having each and every day. Yes, completely agree with you, Michael. I think it's so important for brands to understand that every single touch point is part of your brand. It doesn't matter if it's like you said, this minute smallest little thing to you're going to your going into a checkup or you're going for you know a root canal surgery right every single touch point is so important so give you guys a little hypothetical situation right now let's say i'm a dentist about it that uh start my journey looking for a job maybe this question's for michael but obviously Corey can answer and, and give a give her two cents as well what's the sell to me why should i want to work for aspen dental right what's the little quick pitch you Let's in particular <laughs> or, or a qualified hold on <laughs> anyone um, anyone could be if you want to make it personalized you could do because i genuinely believe that there's no other employer or no other option that will shepherd you through your career and give you the best in class learning and development yes. the best in class opportunities the most opportunity from a financial reward perspective from an ownership perspective, but to really give our employees a tailored and personalized experience to help them truly thrive as professionals and individuals. It's such a unique opportunity to be part of a network within human or animal health, to have so many peers to learn from, yeah. so many world-class folks that are complete industry experts in their disciplines that you have personal touch points with and regular interaction with plus being a part of something that is so much larger a real peer support system so much camaraderie which i find to be truly 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 unique and when you think about you mentioned aspen dental is just one of our brands but if you think about aspen dental its purpose and you think about where the Aspen Dental locations are within the United States. 
And you think about the power of our network to pull down the costs and the barriers to healthcare. It's really something that's quite remarkable. Bringing healthcare to those underserved parts of the United States and to bring healthcare to people's families that might not otherwise have access to care is really something that's quite special. So I could go on for the remainder of this podcast about the reasons why I truly believe that this is the number one option for our providers and all of those people that support our providers, because what we have here is something that's truly unique and best in class in really so many ways. Is he going to sign? Yeah, are you, you in? Sign? Are you in? Uh, yeah, I'm sold. That was one of the most convincing. In blood. Bits. In blood, yeah, right? yeah. I, I, yeah, I feel like... That's how we do our offer processes here. It's <laughs> Just... in blood. Yeah, I feel like I'm saving the world now to ask me to invest in that pitch, really. Well, that's the, that's the, one of the nuances of... I agree. We do here, right? I mean, we've worked in so many different industries and so many, in so many different markets, but, you know, and I've worked for companies where it's really been quite a stretch to align your personal values to the company's yes. mission and values yes. and what they're doing good in the world. Yeah. But when you're working in an organization where well, the beating heart of our organization are those that are treating people and are helping people. And for some of the reasons that I just explained, you know, it's not, it's not a stretch to, to understand how, how you or I or others in this building are contributing towards something that's, that's really special. So yeah, you are saving lives. <laughs> Thinking, well, really putting it all together. I think you guys have an interesting background because of the type of brands you guys have worked in. Chime, I believe, Udemy, Delivery Hero, Aspen Group, and they're all, I believe, consumer companies. Correct? Uh, unless I'm, yeah, Udemy, yeah, consumer, I'm losing myself. Yep. What techniques have you guys found effective? I mean, because these are multi-billion dollar companies alone, standalone companies. What te- techniques from an employer branding perspective have you found effective from a people perspective, right? As, through leadership, understanding that what you said earlier, Michael, you know, Im- you know impact in the business is your department. What, what techniques have you guys found effective when looking to not necessarily broadcast your people to the world, but your products to the world? What influence does your department have in those relationships? I will start at least from my perspective and something that we're really finding that's working at the Aspen Group. Because again, like while Michael is out, you know, selling it, the people that are on my team and what I'm doing is I am removing barriers and, you know, the folks that he's hiring, those are my customers, right? So my team, we are servicing and acting as customer service agents and removing barriers to them to be able to do their job so that they can bring better care to more people, right? And so if they can focus on doing that and we're removing those barriers and we're providing them with a good employee experience. But what's interesting here is that given that, you know, we're five pretty different brands outside of two of them in the dental space, right? We've got 20,000 employees across the entire U.S. and they all kind of look and feel different. What we're trying to at least implement from like a internal branding perspective for our team is really latching onto this idea of like same, similar, and different. And so as a center of excellence, right? Like let's say from like total rewards, right? What is the same is our compensation philosophy. Think of it that way, right? Like how we're going to market positions, how are we going to do that? It's going to be the same across the entire enterprise and umbrella. Things that might be similar is, you know, how we do performance management or the questions that we ask or the cadence in which we do it. And things that might be different is just completely like the holidays that were open or, 
you know, how we, you know, how we do the merit cycle or things like that. And it's really like, we found that this is a really good groove that we're in because while we can still drive that like consistent idea of like, to be an employer of choice, we firmly believe in these foundational things. Those are all the same. We are allowing kind of those nuances from the similar and the different. And like, I feel like it's actually really working well for us because we're able to meet our employees where they are, whether they might be a vet because they might need something different, right? Like they are motivated by something different, by wanting to help, right? And somebody on the different side might, you know, in, you know, let's say in the dental world, right? Like they are more interested in X, Y, and Z for, you know, I'm using bad examples, but it's just, I think I really like that idea that we're moving with from that perspective. Yeah, I com- I completely agree. I'm, all of the work that Corey and Corey's teams do kind of make mine and my team's jobs easier, right? I always kind of use a bit of an analogy of like, kind of like a magnet, like the core or the center of pull, the gravity, the, let's use the magnet, the magnet works best, I think. <laughs> Corey and her teams are are creating a very strong magnet. They're meeting people where they're at. They are listening to employee groups and building, you know, compensation philosophies, pay programs, benefits programs, you know, great, great cultures or facilitating leaders to create great cultures within their teams. All of these people topics are essentially building this very, very, very strong magnet. My teams just need to get people within the magnetic field of that that magnet. (laughs) Because then we can, then then the attraction piece yeah. becomes a lot easier. Because what we have, we just need to get the messages out there, really, of the great things that we're doing. And the best person to answer that question, we've recently hired a CMO for our employer brand. So in the same way that we have maybe a CMO for one of our, for each of our consumer brands, what I think is quite unique in our setup is that we've hired a CMO for the employer brand. Um, and, and recruitment marketing, who would be able to answer this question much more eloquently than than I can. But we truly need to to get the the reasons to believe or the the honest things that we are doing as an organization and the amazing magnet that sorry, I'm still with that, that Corey and 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 her teams are are creating and get that to the right audience at the right time in the right point in their yes. journey, you know, whether it's out into the schools. You know, whether it's out to those that might be working in a private practice or in a different part of the world or whatever that might be, we need to make sure that the outside world knows that we are hearing what people like them want and need and desire from an employer and that those messages are getting under the noses of the right people at the right time. So they make the right choice, which is to to join our company. So that principle of your employer being being of choice, do you think that's translatable to early stage companies? I mean, you mentioned, I mean, all these big time companies you guys work for, you guys definitely entered in at a growth plus stage. Resources, you know, seasoned leadership, excellent collaboration at the executive level. What's translatable to early stage startups that are almost like trying to get their foot in the door to establishing culture and almost following in that footsteps of making, you know, your employer of choice? I would almost say like the the thing that I think all HR leaders in all size companies are going to say is that like your culture matters, but the HR doesn't own culture. I think that's like the biggest misnomer across like, I think business landscape is like, oh, HR is the chief culture officer. No, that's not the case. It's like your people are your culture, how you treat them, how you 
how you exemplify and yeah. lead as a leader builds yeah. from the ground up. And so, right. you know, whether you're five people or 500,000 people, like, you know, you got to get the foundational things right, right? You're not always going to be able to focus on all core foundational things at the same time. But like, let's say it's like, okay, well, we're not going to have as much money to pay at the top of the market. So we're going to be okay in comp, but we're going to do a lot in growth, right? Like, I think it's that levers type of situation is that like, you know, people have choices. And I like to think of it as that like, people have choices, but you can all of your levers can't be low, you can't not pay well, and you can't not have good benefits and you can't not have any growth and you yeah. can't not, you know what I mean? And so like, okay, maybe I'm willing to do this, but I know that I'm going to get this experience. that's going to put it up here. Right. That kind of yeah. like creates that total experience. And from an employer branding perspective, like that's what your brand is, is that like yeah. great places to work doesn't mean that they're leading in every single area, but that like they are good at what they're good at. And if yeah. you're five people, like, that that should be core to yeah. your process and creating. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're an early stage company, you are going to receive what you put out there. Mm-hmm. And often there can be a little bit of a mistake that happens early of, you know, just assembling squads, getting kind of people to, together. But the experience that you are bringing into your early stage company through your people is is crucial, right? It, it couldn't be more crucial than at that, that stage. And just to echo Corey, just to echo Corey's point, do it right, get it right from the beginning. Make your employer truly a destination yeah. for the for the for the folks that you want to bring in. And I haven't thought about it in a while, but what Corey mentioned at, just at the beginning there about a people team or an HR team owning culture. You see that a lot with startups, like you know, head of people and culture, or you know, pe- people and culture officer. It kind of makes me shudder. It me as, the it, yeah, like, uh, it's not true. You're not the culture. Officer. You know, a, an HR team can can coach. An HR team can provide tools. It can develop leaders. It can really build a lot of infrastructure within teams that can allow for a great culture to thrive. To thrive. But leaders really need to take accountability and senior leadership really needs to take accountability for the culture because the moment it sits with HR or HR are responsible or accountable for it, becomes a box check. Perhaps you have beers on a Friday afternoon. Perhaps there'll be a little bit of a party once in a couple of weeks. But that's not (laughs) what culture culture is. Culture is whether you have the Sunday night fear before going into work on a Monday morning, right? <laughs> culture is how you talk to your best friend about work uh, when you when you catch up at the weekend. Culture is whether you're browsing LinkedIn for a new job, <laughs> you know, when you should be um, browsing Excel to, to figure out what's going on with your sales or whatever. Yeah. Like, you know, culture means much more than that. And culture cult- happens every minute of every day. Yeah. What does accountability look like from a leadership slash executive team in, in reference to culture, like what should they be doing to hold themselves honest so the people you know, beneath them are having an experience worthwhile while being at the company that they're leading? Big question. That's the first one that I think I'm going to take a beat to think about. We, if we think about kind of how we, how we, maybe we can start with how we, we do it or, or how we encourage our business leaders to to take accountability. We use a popular employee engagement survey, for example, that has 
a number of questions that really kind of get to the core of what motivates and inspires and engages employees within within the teams. We work very closely with leaders to hold them accountable to the feedback, the engagement feedback that they're getting through this tool from the folks that are within within their department, within their team, or how, however you however you look at it. We will score based on particular drivers. We can monitor that over time. We can give leaders tools to, you know, address certain needs, themes that they're seeing within the within the teams. There are so many tools available to help facilitate leaders to create the right environment for people to thrive and the right cultures within their organizations. And there are ways through those metrics and those tools to hold leaders accountable for trends getting worse rather than getting better or for, you know, certain metrics kind of going north rather than going south. You know, so there are there are ways to do it, but I think it's really it really does depend on the organization, what what tech stack you have, kind of what the whether you're starting from zero or starting from a hundred, kind of where you are in that in that journey. But really it comes down to asking for feedback and but, seeing whether leaders are receptive to that feedback. But to your point, I think culture accountability is when you ask for that feedback you do something with that feedback like it's really establishing a listening culture and like defining what your listening culture is and you know and and that is something that you instill like in your leadership right it becomes something that that becomes ingrained in your interview process like tell me the last piece of feedback that you got and how you know, you yeah. implemented something to change that or you worked to change it, right? And of course, you're yeah. not going to be able to respond to every bit of survey feedback or feedback that you get. Yeah. But it's important that you're open and honest with, we heard you. These are the things that, you know, that we think are issues or could be areas of opportunity. Or the themes. The themes. And this is what we're going to do about it, right? Because like so many times... Like people just think like, oh, you know, accountability is just like, did the, is this, you know, a yes, no, or something that's yeah. very binary. And it's not, it's really like woven throughout how you treat people, how you listen to people, how you yeah. acknowledge people, how you recognize people, right? It's, it's, it's kind of all of those things that like make you accountable to the culture and to the team that you're leading and that sort of thing. And a great people's team can, can help with all of that. Here are the themes, you know, do you need this? Have you thought about this? Yeah. Can we support you with this? These are all questions you can ask the leader based upon. But they have to uh, want to do it. But they have to they have to want to do to do it. I mean, I, I've seen organisations have engagement surveys. They ask the feedback. To Corey's point, they do nothing about the feedback. They don't have that established listening culture. Mm-hmm. They haven't identified what that looks like. How many times have you seen or heard from maybe somebody in the business? Oh, you know, our Glassdoor reviews are looking bad or our indeed score is down or you know these sorts of comments rather than saying well what what's the what is that feedback what are the themes and how can we work internally to again employer of choice to look at what it is about us as an employer that can improve that will result in better engagement scores better external review scores and so on Oh, for sure. I love that. And something I kind of want to circle back to, and Corey, you kind of mentioned it right now, speaking about creating a, lynch, a listening culture, you know, establishing that, you mentioned how you want to get culture right from the beginning, establishing the basics, establishing the pillars. 
what are those pillars? And throughout your career, and the, for the both of you as well, throughout your career being in so many different companies with, in what seems like to me, amazing culture, you guys look like you have a great time together and, and the Aspen group is, is, is very much enjoys each other's presence. So what are just some methods or strategies or maybe there's a, a founder listening to this or uh, a an executive saying, what are some actual things I could take away from this and start instilling into my culture? What methods and strategies have you find effective really well, little maybe like tidbits you've seen that just work really well through, through uh, both years experiences? I would say that like, I, I like the idea going back to what I said about the listening culture, like, and that's something that's easy to do, right? That's like, how are we going to listen to people? Am I going to listen to people, right? Like, am, you know, do I know myself enough to know if I'm going to even listen to the feedback? Am I open to feedback? Am I close to feedback? And if I'm close to feedback, am I making that known at that time? And like, not everybody's always going to be open to feedback all the time, right? And I remember at Udemy, and I loved Udemy, but it was very much feedback is fuel. And I'm like, not all the time. Sometimes it's emptying my gas tank. I could have less feedback, <laughs> you know, but it, but it's, I think it's really being true to like, I, I guess it's just like not, not acting like somebody that you're not or not trying to pretend to be somebody you're not in like being like, oh, we want to model X, Y, and Z company because they're a great place to work, you know, and then you get on blind and it's like, everybody hates working at that place. Like, how is this, how does this keep happening? But they've got a really good employer brand, you know? So I think, I think for leaders, it's almost like before you can even work on the culture, you got to look at yourself first and figure out like, who am I? What, what do I stand for? How do I want to be treated? How would I want to treat somebody? And like, now that I've become a mom, a lot of times I kind of come back to this idea of like, if my children were in the workplace as adults and somebody talked to them like that, or if I talked to somebody's child like that, would I be embarrassed for myself? And it kind of like so puts it in perspective yeah. of just like, if a person talked to my daughter like that, like, mm-hmm. how would I react? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's your just, daughter it, it had gives, to show up to that workplace right. every day. And, and it, yeah. gives, it really does. It gives like a humanistic idea of just like, it, and it also removes you from it, right? Not everybody has kids and I get that, but it's just like, I find that that really works for me. Yeah. And it's just like, I feel like I've been at least personally on a journey of self-reflection because I think how I was a leader when we first worked together is completely different now that like, you know, five years from now, you know, yeah. it's been five years and I'm different and I've learned different things. And, you know, I've decided there will be hills that I will die on and there are other hills that I will not die on. And yeah. just, you know, knowing the difference between the two, I think like helps me become a better leader. Yeah, that's so interesting. Like you touched upon like authenticity, yeah. kind of personal values, moments for reflection as a leader, as an organization, uh, just kind of check- checking in, checking in with yourself and, and others and I, owning it when you mess up owning it when you mess up right that's a huge thing i think you know Corey mentioned before that you know her teams deliver upon the promises that my teams make to the to the outside world and that needs to match up there needs to be that level of accountability and authenticity too you know that the promise matches the reality you know we, we live in a world of without sounding too cliche we live in a world of kind of work-life integration you know, we work with people, we're in the business of people, treating people as such and truly understanding what motivates them and what makes them tick. You know, if if we're giving that advice to this fictional founder of the early stage organization, you know, how much time is truly invested in getting to know 
people within the teams and what they want and what they desire and, and the journeys that they're on as individuals you know sometimes we can get a little bit lost on that right yeah and if you're asking them hey do you want x and they're telling you no i want y but you're still going with x then you can't really expect to have a great culture right and i think that we often know these things but we get so caught up in you know uh delivering what we need to to the board to, to the investors to all of those you know other stakeholders that we do forget that essentially we are just the sum of our army of our troops of our employees that is what what ultimately makes a business i would argue more so in terms of our people business but in any business we are just the sum of of our people and to not put up not put the people at the heart really of everything that we do would be would be a misstep and detrimental and detrimental to, to any any business i think this is a great segue into something me and chris value i think more so than other sectors of the people ops space which is candid responsibility uh, michael you said something i really like having companies have the promise match up with the reality too many circumstances where we see candidates whether gen z millennials the baby boomers doesn't really matter where here's a here's a job offering hey we do x y and z this would be a role or cultures like ABC, you go through the whole onboarding, you know, the hoorah, you're here, boots on the ground, and it's it's not what that was what was sold to you. With that being said, I want to stray away from more so an employer's responsibility and really dive deeper into the responsibility candidates have when going through that journey. What are some cultural things that candidates should be asking themselves and asking companies just from a career exploration point of view? when considering so really where they want to work it's it's, it's a it's a big it's a it's a big question and i think there's a very philosophical question there too you know i think sometimes you can put people to oversimplify into the camps of the world happens to them or you know i impact the world that i live in every single day and i do think that to completely generalize and i know that you know not all circumstances are like this you show up to work you know how do you impact the teams around you, the workplace around you, how do you create your own reality or how do you create the environment and the success that you wanted when you signed that offer letter? So there is an element to look at it very optimistically and to look at it, you know, very much through the lens of, you know, I can create my own, my own destiny. Yes. There is an element of that. So I think that, you know, there is that it's it's a, it's really challenging because I think it's there's so many different circumstances and so many different environments where that where that absolutely isn't the case. You could show up to an employer and the next day you find out that they've lost funding and you've lost your job. Right? There's really there's often times where we can be helpless, but there's often times where we think that we're potentially in a helpless set of circumstances, where often there's a way to you know create a different reality. By kind of just jumping into the driving seat a little bit more. Mine wasn't going to be as philosophical. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I love your philosophical answer, but like mine wasn't. I was going to be like, I, I like back, not to like drum on this, but like, uh, you know, asking your leader or asking whomever's like in charge of the department that you're interviewing with, like, what were your engagement scores and what are your areas of opportunity? Mm -hmm. And what did you do to change it? Right. Yep. If that's something that you want. And like, but not everybody needs to work in a company that has a listening culture that's going to respond to everything, right? Like some people want to do that, but it's also simple. It's like, what time do people go home, right? Like, yeah. 
can you tell me like three reasons why you would warn somebody that you loved against this role in right. this team in this company you know I think that there is a lot of power in that two-way when you're having those exploratory conversations and a very two-way interview you, you and you're interviewing the, the employer you know having that kind of warts and all discovery of that employer I think people are often frightened to do it but I think it also really signals to the employer that you are somebody who knows what they want yes and you're somebody who isn't scared of you know really ensuring that they are stepping into something that is right for them with eyes wide open with eyes wide open and knowing the good and the bad and knowing like hey it's yeah you know and I think myself when I am talking to candidates right when I'm trying to sell the role it's like I'm going, I'm not going to give rose colored glass, right? Because to your point, you don't want to show up and on day two, you're like, oh my gosh, what the hell did I sign up that, for? That, you want that to know woman that. gaslit me. Why did she <laughs> gaslight me? Yeah, like I, was thinking, you know, <laughs> I want to know that. I want to know that going in, right? And you yeah. want, and especially if you're hiring, I think like the more as I get bigger, bigger teams, like I want to be fiercely protective of the people on my team and I want them yeah. to love and feel good and happy about showing up every day and you're not yeah. going to show up great every day right like that's an unrealistic expectation but also feeling like it's a safe space to show up and be like look i'm running on you today right like yeah. i'm just today's going to be a day where like i'm not going to be super talkative and i'm not going to do those things and like you know but making a safe space and like explaining who you are as a leader and that like you have space for people to be who they are mm -hmm. at work i think is incredibly important yeah, absolutely. And I think during that interview process, you know, even creating that safe space of, are there any difficult, you know, hey, candidate, are there any difficult questions you want to ask me? Is there anything I can tell you that you're eager to know to make sure this is the right fit for you? And really just giving that nudge is, some, is sometimes, you know, that's all that's needed. It also goes back to the employer brand conversation that we had, right, about putting authentic reasons out into, into the world that will resonate with the audience. Yeah. It's not about tricking people to come to you instead of your competition. It should, that's when it can, that's when people get it so, so, so incredibly wrong. It's about searching inside the organization to the things that you authentically have and making sure that your audience and the world knows that you have those things. It's genuine. So they can genuinely choose you that's when that's when employers really 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 do get it right i like that mixture with employer branding you guys both mentioned how there's an element of questioning and discovery that has to be done from the candidate to the potential employer whether it be through the onboarding process whether it be through those early days but tying into the employer branding part what are some exploration questions or homework maybe that candidates should be doing or asking themselves when evaluating a company due to those employer branding efforts yeah, yeah. I mean, there are candidates asking those questions, but we also have to remember that it's also employees asking those questions, right? Employer branding doesn't stop on on day one of a candidate turning into an employee. You know, every single employee has cho has choices. You know, whether to stay, whether to leave, whether to go somewhere else, whether to pivot in their career. When we're thinking about the employer brand, it's it's the candidate choosing us, but it's also each and every day you're employee choosing you again and again and yes. again it's, it's why authenticity is just so so fundamental so sorry we, no but we always talk about 
engaged employees are retained employees and retained employees are engaged for employees and engaged and retained employees attract people in because they're engaged and they're retained. Mm -hmm. I love that. Where do, you, where do you guys get these sound bites? Yeah, you guys are so clever. It's ridiculous. <laughs> we just talk about stuff all day. Just, just, are, you, are you guys hiring over there? <laughs> we are. I thought you just said, are you guys high? <laughs> no, no, no. I just are you guys hiring? Hiring. Got it. Got it. <laughs> but uh, with that being said, what, what makes your what makes your day-to-day -day difficult? What are certain things that you guys are going through, maybe not necessarily within the Aspen group or just dilemmas you see within the, the people space? that uh, have been very turbulent to you guys throughout the years, potentially? I would just say in general, change is hard. In, and in the people space, whether you want to or not, you are, all, you are usually the steward or face of change of some kind, whether that be of a process or a way we do things or of what, like HR can somewhat be the scapegoat of a lot of things and become the figurehead of like, mm -hmm. this is a workplace thing, but HR, you're going to be the face of it. And it's, you know, and... And I think it's change in general and helping people understand why things are changing, right? Like change is inevitable, but the one thing that you can get right that like it took me a while to hone in on and understand is like communicate. The more that you can communicate why things are changing or what that change is and to give people that psychological safety around that change and to bring them along in the journey continues to help, right? It's not always going to be perfect. It's not a perfect science and you're never always going to get it right. But I think like, you know, something that I've seen at every single organization that I've been at is change and things that people freak out about is change. Mm -hmm. And that that's a constant. I think that's the, yeah. I think that's, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with that. I'm trying to think like what kind of keeps me not up at night. Nothing keeps me up at night. But what <laughs> very well. <laughs> very well. You know, I would say that the spaces that we operate in and in as a business are fiercely competitive. And if I take one example, which is the most recent addition to our family, which is the the vet space, right? Animal animal healthcare. COVID happened. What you know, during COVID, what did everyone do? They got a puppy. That whole industry exploded. Yeah. The demand for veterinary providers really 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 outstripped the supply of veterinary providers in the united states and that was because we had private equity moving in there was loads of acquisitions people realized just how much there would be increasing demand uh, within this space and therefore lots of companies wanted 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 a piece of that so we therefore operate in an environment where we are competing fiercely for our talent and therefore, our approach, as we've spoken about today, is to genuinely be the destination of choice and genuinely try to be the best employer we can, because we know that that will be attracting, engaging and retaining the people who are essentially driving revenue for the business. Yeah. Corey and I are in a quite unique, in quite unique people jobs, not for the industry, but in general, because Again, our people are our product. We add a, for example, a vet, a veterinary provider to our business. We add X amount of revenue to that business. We add five. We add five X that amount of revenue to our business. We lose one. We lose X amount of revenue. You, you see where I'm going with this. So therefore, it puts us very, very close to the to 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 the strategic driver of 
the business. It also puts us very, very, very close to to the revenue of, of the business, which and there's so much. And that's why we're here, right? There's, yeah. there's so much beauty in that. It really, really does does put people to not even a seat at the table, but at one of the thrones at the table because our people are our product. But with that and with the market as it as it currently looks, it means that we have to have our eyes wide open, be at the top of our game, be consistently innovative, make sure that we are constantly reflecting and looking at what makes us an employer of choice, making sure that we're challenging it from every angle to ensure that that product is very, very, very robust. Um, and that's where I think a lot of our mental horsepower goes. Yes. I just want to pinpoint something I thought that just came to my mind about, for example, the vet industry, how you said there's more demand than than manpower, essentially. How often our cultural demands, people op demands, HR demands, subordinate almost to resources and capital. Like, do you feel as if like, maybe not necessarily your department, but it could be just the people ops industry wholesomely. Do you feel like it tends to take a backseat when it comes to capital allocation and resources and perspective when it comes to, you know, individuals like yourselves really trying to make a difference, understanding how crucial it is for profit, essentially? I think it I think it depends. And we've we've talked a lot about this. We had an offsite earlier this week and we talked a lot about this. Is that like in our HR teams, what's so important is the commercialization and the understanding of how our business works. Mm -hmm. And I find that like if you are an HR organization that is business minded first from like an actual like I understand what my business does I understand how we make money and you can build yeah. your business case based on data and how this will directly impact that bottom line which I think we do a really good job of we don't yeah, I absolutely. don't feel that constraint because like if, as long as I understand where we're trying to go and I can pinpoint to that thing yeah. and how it's going to move that needle like but I, I, but that's not all. That's not all teams, and that's not all. That's not HR. all. That's not H, That's not HR as a general and standard and out there in the world. Yeah, it's you know not I, our brand, but I mean HR practitioners. HR practitioners. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's you know there are still some organisations, unfortunately, where HR is a kind of back office support function rather than a strategic driver yeah. of the business. And yeah, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it until Corey just mentioned it, but. Being incredibly commercial is an absolute must for anyone that's working within within our teams. The understanding of the business, the financial levers, kind of the impact upon margin. It's, it's just absolutely it's absolutely fundamental because there's no other way to to approach it. Yeah. And that helps, of course, in this in this kind of resource when you were talking about resources and, and limitations kind of out there in the market. Because we do need buy-in to continue to be, but from from our business leaders to continue to be competitive, and that's that's really important. I think also, you know, we try to make impact really early upstream. You know, for those who might still be in school thinking about becoming a dentist, you know, to those who are like thinking, oh, you know, I want to go to veterinary school. I, you know, we we the uh, the more we can widen the pools upstream the more we will benefit from the fruits of that yeah of that investment kind of later on so as we're going through we're about to go through strategic planning as an organization we're thinking 
you know, three, five years ahead um, to what do we need to do to impact the narrative of us as a business, us as an industry early so we are ready for what we need to do a number of years down the line. For extension of what you just said, you know, widening, widening the pores really upstream. I mean, it's a testament to what you guys were speaking about earlier with how valuable employee branding really is. Because essentially this could almost be efforts and campaigns that almost don't really need capital for you to still provide impact when either trying to attract or influence people, maybe not necessarily to your company, but to almost performing as a better candidate for whenever that time comes for them, whether it be a dentist with the aspirin group or things like that. Another No, I was gonna say that's very true. You know, it's important obviously to stand out amongst your competitors, but it's also important for us to always think about how we further dentistry as a whole. You know, we're, we're one of the big, big, big fish within within this world. If we think about just Aspen Dental, we could say the same about the other businesses within the Aspen group, but we have a responsibility to further the discipline as a whole, yeah. you know, given the kind of given where we, the, the place that we sit within that, within that industry. 100%. Well, definitely trying to be considerate of both of you guys' time. One more question I would love to ask and get your perspective on is, where do you guys foresee the people op space looking like five, 10 years out? I think I, me and Chris speak with a lot of professionals, a lot of candidates just starting to understand like people ops is more than just compensation and insurance and all these things. What's the evolution like with the demands and the new interest of Gen Z millennials really trying to take a stab forward into valuing culture at a premium when considering companies? I think what I think it's going to look like in the future is a lot of what HR is known to do, these operational pieces. I think whether we like it or not is going to get taken over by AI, which, you know, is fine, but that frees up the mental capacity space for people, practitioners to be that strategic partner and to be that, you know, emotional intelligence counselor and to help shepherd a listening culture and to, you know, have a commercial mindset from a people perspective to move the business forward. And I saw that I said AI and I saw your eyes get big. So I don't know if you want to say something to that. I'll I'll let, I'll let Michael uh, go forward. I know he had some, he wants something to say and then I'll, I'll chime in. I I couldn't agree more with what with what Corey just said. I really d don't have anything to add to that. You know, we are already using AI in certain ways, which is maybe where you were going with your with your next question. Although you did say that was that was your last question, so got you. Um, but you know, the more that we can be spending time as people practitioners, people leaders on strategic topics that drive the business, yep. it's the best place for us. So we welcome any tech advancement you know Corey and I have a shared interest in any kind of people tech yep. and how we can integrate new technologies we love to pilot new things we we love to know what the latest and greatest is and how we can fold things into our HR people tech stack you know that's because that means that our folks our bright folks that we have within our within our organizations can be spending time on strategy yes. can be spending time making impact with their business leaders we're definitely going to have to have a thorough conversation off camera <laughs> regarding AI and the cool things that you guys have going on. But 
listeners, you'll find it in part two. <laughs> if you subscribe and hit, and hit the like button and join the premium service, then join us where we'll be talking about how we use AI in uh, AR, AI in um, our everyday work lives. <laughs> Absolutely. This is something me and Chris, we talk about oh too often, mm-hmm. being that millennial Gen Z demographic, AI is everywhere and everything. At least that's what it seems. And speaking with a lot of people leaders, we're always interested in understanding where you guys foresee AI being effective and maybe not so effective, understanding that the people space is led by people. So that human interaction is crucial. I mean, we'd love really just to open the floor to hear any tools or perspectives you guys have in regards to how effective AI can or can't be within your current day-to-day or future uh, operational duties you guys have whether it's the Aspen group or anything in the near future. I think, I think Michael said it well, right? Like AI, like AI is, is coming, it's existing. And like, it's a welcoming it though, from a tech perspective, from a removing it, you know, operational administration thing, like we're all about efficiency, right? Yeah. So, you know, but to your point, people are always going to be people and like, people are always going to have feelings and thoughts and things that computers can't always provide that like emotional quotient. So there's always going to be a need for people, people to do a piece of what they do, but that like, at the same time, we're going to let it help us on the way there. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, you know, I don't know about, about you, but I'm kind of getting a little bit bored when I'm, you know, if I open up LinkedIn and I'm scrolling and I'm seeing all of this AI generated content, better way. <laughs> so much AI generated content, all of these kind of, obviously you know kind of written paragraphs that you know is just kind of being pumped out so i think already there's a bit of a fatigue that's existing of the non-personalized touch you know if if a vendor reaches out to me with an email that's clearly ai written you know it's it's already very it's already very obvious the best and I, is like dear insert name i'm like okay yeah right. yeah exactly <laughs> it's, it's, and it's super smart it's only going to get smarter and i think as we fatigue it will yeah. obviously it's you know but my point is is that there is the personalized experience and there is the human touch which is becoming more luxurious now and it's becoming more meaningful yeah. because so many of those administrative tasks you know the things that it might have taken four days and four people to do that you can do maybe just in a, in a touch of a button, whether it's creating an asset or, I don't know, an Excel formula or whether it's just uh, you know, do, doing something with a bunch of data that, that would have been laborious is now just like this, right? I mean, we're, we're all using it each and every day and it's fantastic. But it means that when we show up as people leaders and when our people show up to other people, it means that that's even more meaningful than it ever has been before. And I think that that's going to become that's going to become something that is going to be the differentiator moving forward. Yeah, and I, because we're humans, I've got a movable call in a minute, so we're going to have to end because we're I'm going to be helping somebody write an article, which the computer can't write for us. So not to segue, but actually, I'm like I got an actual phone call I have to take because the computer can't take it for me. Yeah. Yes, that's very true. In respect to your time, very quickly, <laughs> can you tell the people where they can find more about yourselves and more about the Aspen Group? 
Yeah. I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn. I am Corey McGonigal Rose. I would welcome your connection. You know, I'm also an advisor for People Tech Partners, which is who I've got a phone call with right after this. You can find me on their website. You know, you can find me here in Chicago. You can find me, Michael Stops, in all of the same places that Corey just listed above. Beautiful. Michael, Corey, thank you so much. You guys brought in a magnificent energy to the podcast, really. Thank you so much for doing it. Thanks. Bye. Bye.